We're in Matthew, that's the 40th book, the first of the New Testament, chapter 2, verse 1. Read along with me if you would, please. Chapter 2, verse 1 says this. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? We have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And, he, and when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, and this is in Micah chapter 5, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, O ghosts, and search carefully for the young child, and when you have found him, bring back word to me, that I may come and worship him also. And when they heard the king, they departed, and behold, the star in which they had seen in the east went before them until it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with, his, with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold frankincense, and myrrh. Pray with me, would you please? Lord, thank you for the sweet gift of this time. For the amazing way that you speak to us. Lord, be us young or old. Be us brand new to your word or not. Be us in a state where we believe we are so familiar with this story we could recount it ourselves. Or whether this is brand new information for us. Speak to each of us individually today. Right where we need to hear you. So Lord, remove our distractions. Remove from our hearts, Lord, anything or our minds or our eyes, anything that keeps us from hearing you completely today. By the power of your Holy Spirit, speak profoundly, deeply. Saturate and captivate us today. Ignite us in you and unite us in your Spirit. That today we would be profoundly ministered to. Filled for the purpose of of drawing near to you first and transforming the world around us or being used by you to do so. So, Lord, have your way now, I pray. And, Lord, I know the message you've put on my heart. Lord, don't let me speak a word to the left or to the right. But, Lord, let me hear your voice. And as you've filtered this through my own soul, Lord, now speak to us. Impact us. Lord, stun gun us as necessary. But rock this world, Lord, and rock ours by doing so with this word. Save, transform, encourage, inspire today each of us. In Jesus' name. Amen. I would say today as I would any day, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the word and let the Bible have the final say. We have a couple really beautiful things to develop, and I need to at least start by setting the political scene and how that plays into Scripture. And then after playing the political scene, we'll dive into who these wise men may be. Back in the book of Genesis chapter 25, 
Rebecca is pregnant. Rebecca will be the mother of Jacob, who will get the name change of Israel. So the 12 tribes is grandmother. And her pregnancy is a difficult one. And as a result of that, she's sort of wondering why. God speaks to her personally and says in Genesis 25:23. And go ahead and turn there so you know. That's the first book of the Bible. Keep your finger where you're at so you don't lose your place. God says to her, Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. So, two peoples in your body, you get the idea, they're twins. Two nations will come from them, we get the idea, they'll both be fruitful. They're at war with each other, which tells us that the two of them will fight against each other. And in that battle, oddly enough, the younger will become the dominant. Gather that information in your head for a second. The woman gives birth, Rebecca, and as she gives birth, the first one that comes out is red and hairy. So imagine, if you will, a ginger Daniel. Bearded baby. The beautiful part. In essence, sort of like a ginger Chewbacca. So the woman names the boy two names, rightly so, Harry and Red. That would make sense. Esau is the word for, for Harry. Edom is the word like Adam. Edom means red. From Adam, or Edom, I'm sorry, from him will come then a tribe of people called the Edomites. There are people that will be, in essence, estranged, but part of the Edomite family, and they will call themselves Edomians. <clears throat> From the tribe of the Edomians will be a man. And Ruthie, I don't like to embarrass you, but I want to call you forward. It's a reference. Come forward for just a second. I know. See? PK problems. It's the first time. Just, I just want you to stand. That's all you have to do. Thank you. That's it. I just want you all to look and compare, just in height. That's it. See, see Ruthie's height here. This Idumean, by the way, was shorter than Ruthie. Just to give you a reference. Thank you, Ruthie. That person's name was Herod the Great. Now, he wasn't great, obviously, because of his height. He was roughly four foot four. He was actually called that, well, he kind of gave himself that name, to be honest. But he was a fantastic builder, but he was also a maniac. He, his father was Antipater the Idumean, but his mother was Nebataean. Nebataean means she was Arabian. So he was a half-breed, if you will. Mixed race. The political temperature in Herod's day, <clears throat> the governor of Judea was a man named Antigonus. But what Herod will do is he will murder Antigonus and declare himself king over the area of Judea. Now, Antigonus would have called himself governor, but Herod had bigger plans. Now understand that Antigonus was the final leader in what we might call the Hasmonean dynasty. Jewish blood. And he will be replaced then by this Herod. Because Herod had gotten his throne from violence and deceit, from strategy, Herod lived in a world where he constantly believed other people thought like he did. In his 37-year reign, he will kill, kill nearly 8,000 Jewish people in the area, not only of Judea, but he'll assume, in essence, the right over almost all of what we know today to be Israel. Personally, 
He will first form his, force his family to convert to Judaism. And then he will start to play the intrigue game. He suffered from paranoia, as you might imagine, as happens with a weak conscience. So, Herod had two different kinds of sons. Those that were able-bodied, those that were intelligent, those that were go-getters, and those that weren't. Herod murdered every son he thought was a threat. So much so that I believe it was Caesar has been said to say it was safer to be a pig in Herod's court than his son. Remember, if he was Jewish, he wouldn't eat pork. Of his sons, by the way, he would have them drowned, strangled, impaled, whatever it took. So you can understand why after Herod dies, interestingly enough, by the way, in 4 BC, so that puts some interesting math behind all of this, why the only sons that were left were the not-so-pick of the litter, the ones that were not a threat to a paranoid dad. This is why after Herod the Great dies, nobody is equipped to take all of dad's territory, and it has to be broken up into fourths, for which we would call the area a tetris. And thus, you will read about Herod the Tetrarch. Well, what's that? That's a son of this Herod taking a quarter of dad's territory. I'll give you an idea. Herod was married at least ten times. Some argue as many as 24. His favorite was his niece, by the way, that he had married when she was a teenager. But he actually someday thought that she was a threat to him, and so he strangled her himself. Then, in the north, he met a prostitute that looked just like Mariamne, this girl. He employed her services, and that girl was a walking bag of diseases. Herod, therefore, the assumption is that he received both gonorrhea and syphilis from her, although we can't actually say it was just her. I think he probably used the services more than once of others as well. And if you're anything familiar with those type of diseases, it causes you to go mental. His condition towards his death Well, this is what it says. First of all, his ankles had swollen to roughly nine inches. Now, who do I dare do this to? Allie, what size shoe do you have in America? An eight. Could you hold up your foot for a second? Everyone, take a look at Allie's foot. Do you see that? His ankle was an inch bigger than that. He was in bad shape. Thank you, Allie. The the historians of the day said that he smelled so bad that nobody could handle him for an hour. He had unbelievable bad breath, inconquerable body odor, internal worms, arteriosclerosis, extreme kidney failure, the foulest of breath, of course, gangrene, it's an internal worms, and my personal favorite, gangrene of the privy parts. Man, you really got to make God angry when that stuff starts happening to you. Towards the end, just within the last week before his death, he calls in Salome, his daughter. And he tells Salome to call in all of the leaders under his employ into a specific arena. And then once they all get there, she is to chain the doors and have them all killed. It's nice that this daughter actually doesn't act that out. He also calls in his chief commander and tells him, when I die, I want you to murder the high priest and his family in front of the people so someone will weep at my funeral. What a sweetheart. Archelaus, the son that we'll read later, will take over this territory is actually out of the palace precincts getting wasted when his dad dies. Well, there's no love lost in the family, is there? That gives you an idea what the place was like. Now, imagine a man like that. Shorter than Ruthie, ankles wider than Allie's feet, 
smelling really bad, going completely insane, and paranoid to start with. That was, that was the beginning of the cake before you added your layers. And this man hears about a baby king. Can you see the problem? And can I warn you? You'd say, but he was just a baby. Can I just say, listen, saints, even a little Jesus is a big threat. And you know that. That's why you know that if you told a big Jesus, people will go a little bit rough on you. But we've already won. So this gives us a sort of political condition, by the way, of Herod. Are you all following me so far? Because now I want to get to the really fun stuff. And of course, this all plays in to the idea, I remind you, back in Genesis, if this guy was into me and he would have access to these scrolls, the Torah scroll at least, and he wouldn't have to get but to the 25th chapter of the first book. And in the 25th chapter, he would read about his Idumean background and somebody else that was Judean and how that Judean will be superior. That second son, by the way, remember Harry, Esau, Ginger Chewbacca, the other son that was born after him, actually when the first was being born, grabs the heel of the first. So she calls him heel catcher. They call him heel catcher. And heel catcher means, really in essence, rip off, sneaky thief. Who likes that name? Scoundrel. And of course, he'll get the name change ultimately to Israel. So if you know that somebody that's coming from the tribes of Israel is going to be raised up and they call him a king and you see this prophecy in Genesis 25 and you're already paranoid to start with, this is a really bad combination, wouldn't you think? And that is even before wise men show up from the east. Now, let's do a little bit of prophetic diving into who these guys are going to be. And this is one of my favorite parts of this text. Go back and again to Genesis chapter 25, since you're there, and go to the first verse. I don't know if you're aware of this. Remember old Abraham who had that baby at 100 and how amazing that miracle was? I mean, his wife was a younger girl, so that was okay. She was, you know, 90, so that was okay. I don't know if you're aware of the fact that after Sarah dies, Abraham gets married again. Are you aware of that? Had a boy, dies at 175, and has a lot more kids. And I'm thinking, wow, what an inspiration. Anyways, Genesis 25, verse 1. Look at what it says. Now, this is after the death of Sarah. Abraham again took a wife, and her name was Keturah. Would you say Keturah? God bless you. And she bore him Zimram, Yokshan. And say these names with me just because they're kind of fun. There's three, obviously, that I want to point out. Zimram, Yokshan, Midan. Midan from where we get the Medes and the Persians, for instance. Midian, where we get the Midianites from. One of my favorites, Ishbak. Yes, Ishbak. That's one. Come on, do it with me. Come on, keep with me. This is audience participation, except it's a congregation. Shua. Beautiful. Those are her six kids. Keturah, by the way, means incense. Kind of a fun name. Now, Yakshan begot Shiva. Would you say Shiva? Shiva, by the way, means covenant. And Didan. Didan. And this is the Didan were Ashurim. Now, see, so you're getting a little bit quieter now, right? Letushim. And Leumim. That was a fun one. The sons of Midian were, and notice, Epha. Epha and Epher. So Epha, Epher, who knows? Maybe they're twins. Hanoch, Abida, and Elda'ah. That's fun. All these were the children of Keturah. Abraham, listen, okay, no, no, okay, I'm actually just paying you back because chances are if you've read through this portion, you probably read that quickly before, and I'm doing God the service of letting you finally read it slowly. Okay, in that, by the way, notice the names Midian, Sheba, and Ephah. Do you see them all there? Okay, and thank you, Daniel, by the way, who's taken the liberty of making it a little easier to find on the screen. Notice what it says about these individuals. Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac, his son. But Abraham gave gifts to the sons of the concubines, which Abraham had while he was still living. And he sent them which way? Eastward away from Isaac, his son, to the country of the east. This is what we get. Abraham, oh, that old man, marries again and has a bunch of kids. 
But he's not going to give his inheritance to all of the kids. He already has a boy picked out for that. That's Isaac. So he takes the rest of them and he gives them gifts. Now, Abraham's an extremely wealthy man. So he gives them a lot of stuff and he sends them which way? East. Now, a bunch of the sons of Abraham are going to go and head east. When, what do they have with them? Gifts. Now, what are the gifts? How would I know? Well, actually, we need to go to another place. If you close your Bible, but keep that mark, by the way, in Mark, in Mark uh, Matthew, but you close and you open it right in the middle, chances are it's the book of Psalms. And if you do, then you go to the right, and if you go to the right, to the book of Isaiah. And it's a pretty easy book to find because there's 66 chapters, like there's 66 books of the Bible. And Isaiah, I want you, can you guys find that? Are you finding Isaiah in there? In Isaiah, go to chapter 60. Chapter 60, the one right past 59. Listen to this. Now, I want to remind you that Abraham experience, that was about 3,000 years before Jesus. Now, we're really recent. We're like 720, 750 years before Jesus. I mean, that's pretty close in comparison. And this is what we read in Isaiah chapter 60, verse 1. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Behold, darkness shall cover the earth, deep darkness the people. But the Lord will arise over you, and his glory will be seen upon you. The Gentiles shall come to your light, and kings, do you see that there? To the brightness of your coming, of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see, they gather together, they come to you, your sons come from afar. Do you see that? And your daughters shall be nursed at your side, and you shall see and become radiant, and your earth, I'm sorry, your heart, sorry, shall swell with joy because the abundance of this sea, and God using that in reference to a lot of people, being turned to you. The wealth of the Gentiles shall come to you. The multitude of camels shall cover your land. The dromedaries of, look at these three places, Midian, Ephah, and Shiva. Does that sound familiar? So three of the children or descendants of Abraham. And notice what it says next. Read it on your own. They shall bring what? Gold and what? Incense. And proclaim the praises of the Lord. 700 to 750 years before Jesus was born, Isaiah said, there's a day when the Lord's coming and he's going to rise up. And when that Lord comes, expect Abraham's children to come back. And when they come back, Expect a whole bunch of dromedaries to cover the area. What's a dromedary? Does anyone know? Camel with one hump. Beautiful. Nice. Does anyone know what two is called? A two-hump camel is called a Bactrian, just so you know, for what it's worth. So, one-hump camels everywhere showing up because Abraham's children are being gathered together coming, notice it says gathering from afar, but coming and they're bringing two specific kinds of gifts. And what are they? Gold and incense. And everyone's going to rejoice because they're going to proclaim the glories of God and of the Lord. Do you follow me on that? So should it surprise us what we read in Matthew chapter 2? Notice what it says. And by the way, we can pull out other texts. I just wanted to kind of give you a kind of a rough idea because I love that stuff. And it says, Notice again in verse 1 of, we're back in Matthew chapter 2. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. And we know, of course, what gifts they're going to offer. Wise men, who are they? Could they be Abraham's children? Could they be those children of, by the way, a woman whose name is Incense? Huh. And if this is the case, then put things into perspective for a moment. Right now I'm just setting the scene for the part that gets my heart. But, but please understand, if this is the context of this, I get the idea there weren't three wise men. I, don't, I get the idea that, first of all, what we're going to see by next week is that when they show up, they're actually at the house. No cave, no barn, no anything. And by the way, it's going to be important to note 
and I'll get there next week about that, that it had to be at least 40 days after Jesus was born. Because there's a specific offering that needs to be given on the 40th day, and his parents still didn't have any money on that 40th day, or they wouldn't have given the, the offering they offered, which was a very poor person's offering. Now, clearly when these guys show up, one of the offerings they give is gold, they would have had the money to get a bigger sacrifice. And that offering, by the way, had to be done on the 40th day. So that tells me for 40 days, these guys hadn't shown up. So think about how you're going to do your nativity this year. Now, I'm not trying to destroy the splendor of it. I'm actually adding something even cooler. So what you get then really is you have, you know, sort of Jesus, and you could put him in a barn or a cave or whatever you want, although that's really, if you do it right, you put a trough out somewhere, feeding trough, and you stick him in a dog bowl, and you stick him out somewhere in the outside, and you put some animals if you want to, some shepherds, and then, and then go like walk across the street somewhere, and then go ahead and drive off those guys that you bought in your nativity set that are the wise men and let them start there because they're they're 900 miles away if these guys really are what we read here it appears to me that the star appeared at his birth which means that they had to travel at least somewhere between seven and nine hundred miles after jesus was born what a fantastical thought and there's so much about these guys that i love that really impact me but I love the start of this is that we get the idea that God says, oh, I, I knew this was coming way before it started. I know this was coming back when Abraham had his last set of kids. I just love how God plays this out. So with that in mind, get the idea now. So now you've got a married couple. He's, I, we don't know how old Joseph is. By the way, according to this, by the way, did you notice that they show up and it doesn't seem like Joseph is there, or at least he's not mentioned? It says that they saw, they saw Jesus and his mother. That was it. Now, maybe Joseph was there. Maybe he was in another room. Maybe he was building something. But we only read about the two of them when these guys show up. Now, put yourself, you've just had a baby. You can't go anywhere for eight days. Uh, you know, you're kind of tucked away. After your eighth day, you're going to go, on that eighth day, you bring the boy out so that you can be circumcised and named. All of that's going to be only in Luke, by the way. Matthew, what we really get is a guy struggles because he's engaged to a pregnant girl. God tells him through a dream and an angel who interrupts the dream and says, marry the girl. He does. And then Jesus is already born and these guys show up 40 days later. That's all you get in Matthew, by the way. So that whole nativity scene has to be only Luke. How's that for fun? So now here we are at least 40 days later. So you've had the baby. You've named him on the, on the eighth day. And again, then you make that presentation 40 days later. And so let me think about it. In those eight days, before those eight days, by the way, the shepherds show up. That's clear because according to Luke's account, that was the way it works. So you've had the baby somewhere outside, laid him in a manger, swaddled him, and then shepherds show up somewhere, which has got to be really fun because sheep know what a trough, what a manger is. We get the word mangy from it. That helps you a little bit. And imagine the sheep going, oh, look at a, a bowl for food, and there's a baby in there. And if you know anything about sheep and goats, you really don't want them near your baby. They nibble on everything, baby included. So this is a little bit crazier of an idea than we really actually normally get. I, the one thing I actually don't get from it, and pardon me for this, is I don't get that it was a very silent night. But that's another story. Anyway, so with all of that, you know, and again, I'm not trying to like sort of, I'm, I'm really kind of really, I want to beautify what the scripture says about it. Because what you have is a woman that just gave birth, for goodness sakes, and you've got a, uh, you've got a man who's probably got to keep a bunch of animals away from eating your baby. I mean, don't eat my baby. The Son of God. This is a weird scene. So somewhere in that eight days later, okay, so shepherds show up and you're like, okay, that's kind of weird, right? Okay, that's weird. And they can see them kind of going, hey, give me my bowl back, my dog bowl, you know? And they're like, I'm sorry, I've got to put the baby somewhere. You know, and then after eight days somewhere in all of that, you, you circumcise the child, they name him, everyone thinks that's amazing. And you go back and you try to learn how to live normal life. And a month passes. And now you know on that 40th day now, now you've got to go out and now you're going to go and give that offering, your firstborn offering, the offer to turtle doves. And when you do, according to, uh, according to Luke, all heaven breaks loose. What you have now is you have these guys that are like, oh, I mean, there's this old gal and there's this old guy and one's blind and he's like, I finally saw salvation. And that's a weird thought. And she's like, I can finally die in peace. And you're like, what? And this is the salvation for the world right here. And you're like, well, it's been really quiet since the shepherds. And now it's like, you know, okay, a month later, you're like, okay, that's strange. But you haven't read this text yet. I mean, at this point, you're just trying to figure out how to raise the Son of God as your own. And you get back to the house. And now Joseph somewhere has got to figure out how to work. Mary's got to figure out what it means to be a mom. This is her first child. 
And somewhere there's a knock at the door. Come in. And as there's a knock at the door, there's a, there's like, imagine, imagine this. It isn't like three guys, Caspian or whatever, and, you know, one guy's black and one guy's Asian or whatever, so we can kind of make it like we are the world, whatever. The point is, these guys are from the east somewhere, and imagine, if you will, that you open up the door, and it's like the set from Lawrence of Arabia just showed up. I mean, you're just camels covering everywhere, and you're in a town of maybe 600 people. That's a little stranger than just someone showing up in a manger. You know, I mean, think about it, because now you're opening up the door and going, whoa, Joseph, Joseph, you know, where's Joseph? I'm not going to write him in. Fine, he's not going to make it into the verse. You know, I mean, how weird is it? And you're just trying to take care of a baby. How profound is that? But if we get all of that, let's take a look at these wise men for a moment. Magi, what does that mean? Well, we see that, by the way, in Daniel as well. Guys that obviously, by the way, seem to do the things that God forbids. Things like reading the horoscopes and playing with cards and all these things, which, by the way, God makes really clear and cool. But in all of that, God still knew how to meet them there. Because they didn't know him. And look at what it says now. Develop a bit of it with me. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, so we kind of got an idea of the political setting at the moment. Paranoid, everyone's freaked out. Wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, now question number one, did they ask this of Herod? It just says, wise men came asking, where's the king? We've come to see the king. And it tells us, notice by the way in verse 3, when Herod the king heard this, I get the idea they didn't ask him. So imagine, if you will, you're the king, you're paranoid, you're freaked out, and you're dying of syphilis. Don't, don't, well, try not to imagine it too much. But, but in all of that, all of a sudden you hear the news that maybe as many people as the city of Bethlehem, as the town of Bethlehem, the, the hamlet of Bethlehem, have shown up. However many wise men and their bodyguards, but they tend not to ride camels. So imagine, if you will, being hired to hike 900 miles to go see a baby. I have to tell you, I'm already in awe of these guys. Because I, I start looking at this and I start thinking, wow, wise men. And the first thing I realized, it was not enough to stop at the star. I mean, Jesus speaks about John the Baptist in John 5.35, and he says, look at the guy, he was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing for a time to rejoice in his light. And I want to warn you, please hear me in this, because I want to learn these lessons for myself. Pastors can be stars, and I hate it, but they can become that. You know, we have stars, and then we have superstars. Who's the superstar? That's the guy who maybe got a church more than 15,000 people or something. And you could stop at the star. Now, I don't think of myself that way. And if you know me, you'll know that's true. But you could kind of look and go, well, this is kind of the thing to guide us. It's sort of set up and kind of glows a little bit and shines a little bit. And that's cool. If you're going to be a wise man, go get the king yourself. Don't stop with me. Because whether you know it or not, my name isn't going to look great on a reference when you stand before God. There's only one name that works there, and his name is Jesus. And my goal is to be like this star, if you will, to lead you to Jesus, lead you to the king. But I love the fact that these guys didn't go, well, that's good enough. We've seen the star. That's cool. Well, let's mark it down, and God's going to kind of help give us sort of credit for sort of trying to do something sort of cool for some sort of glory. And in that, by the way, I also learned that they spared no expense. And that's not just of money. It's of time and of effort and inconvenience. Think it through. Which one of you, if you were convinced that that star was there, like you really thought, well, Jesus is going to be as a baby. Let's just travel 900 miles. We have, to be honest, we have no comparison but going to the moon now. We have nothing that inconvenient that we would travel for half a year all year to get there. Could you imagine? 
in on a bumpy one-humped camel? Oh my goodness. And these guys were willing to do all of that to see a baby? But can I say something else in all of this? And this is before I get to the point where I get mulled over on all of this. So I kind of look at this, I realize as well, I mean, the 900 miles, the expense and all of that. And I, I can't help but think of David, who says, by the way, for what it's worth in 2 Samuel 24, 24, when he's speaking to Aruha, the guy that owns the, the ground, by the way, where he's going to actually ultimately uh, prepare for building the temple. And because David's the king, the guy wants to give it to him. David says, I am not going to offer burnt sacrifice with that which costs me nothing. Can I be honest with you? I wonder how much of my personal Christianity has cost me nothing. I mean, it's cost Jesus everything. But I mean, what I think is such great sacrifice that I would pin a martyr button on me. And I've done nothing but maybe ride a train in the morning. Or sit with a bunch of guys in a warm room. Or sit with you for an hour. Or pray a little bit or skip a meal to pray for someone or something. I look at these guys and notice God doesn't even give us names. Maybe there were too many to name. I don't know. God doesn't even give them names, but he does say that they were wise men. And I look at that and I think, oh God, would I ever be willing to do this? Would I be willing to do anything remotely like this? Because what I've learned is comfort is a very dangerous beast for service, against service. And the moment I have to consciously think about whether I want to do something for the Lord or with the Lord, I know I'm in trouble already. Where the Spirit's not just getting me up. So these guys walk into town and they're asking. Now, we don't even know who they're asking. Maybe they're asking everyone they can. And this is the part, you guys, please, please hear my heart. This is the part that really gets me. The the image in my head, and forgive me if it's just sort of my own weird, fantastical way of looking at things. But I get the idea that there's this giant retinue of people, Isaiah tells me that. I mean, dromedaries coming into the land. I mean, this is a lot. This is a big deal. And they show up. And how long would it be for these wise men to tell their bodyguards, to tell the guys that are carrying all their stuff, to tell their porters and their servants and their stewards and say, you guys, wait till you see the king. Wait, wait till you see the king. The majesty, the way you're going to be floored when you see him. Wait till you see that. And they walk into Jerusalem. They're five miles away. And everybody's going about business. Like, it's just like, like it never happened. And there would be a part of me that would be confused. I mean, I see this idea of this guy, and he's gathered up everybody. He's like, whoa, man, this is going to be amazing. We are going to encounter the king. And we're going to be, we're going to be with the king. I mean, the king. I don't care if he's a baby. He's, he is the king. And I want to go see him. And we show up in a town, and everybody's just busy doing everything. And we're asking. We, we, I would assume, I would assume the first guy I asked would know. I would assume the first guy oh, yeah, as a matter of fact, I would just assume we'd be following a crowd. I would be saying to the guy next to me, I wonder how long do we have to wait in a queue to get to this guy? I mean, I wonder how, I mean, just look for the place where everybody's on their face. That's what I would expect. And imagine you walk in, and like, it's like it never happened. They're going to go into Bethlehem as if it never happened. Bethlehem's just going on like it did before. And I wonder if that could be church. Well, you tell someone, you're going to go and meet the king today. We're going to go and we're going to encounter Jesus. Man, wait till you see this. And you come in and it's like I see Jesus walking through the temple and they're selling stuff. You know, and he gets, he just gets angry and he looks at this. And I can see him going, this is not This is supposed to be a place of prayer. This is supposed to be a place when when you walk in, you're like, oh, man, we're going to be with the king. And I have to stumble over a guy trying to sell me a cow, a pot, a bird. And I look at it and I'm thinking, wow, man, this is so cluttered. It is so cluttered. When really what we should expect is to be with Jesus. But then I ask, what about my heart? Let's go beyond the church. Let's go to my heart. 
in my heart. I think, man, at any given moment I could cry out to the king. Is it so cluttered full of the same rubbish, emptiness, and foolhardy nonsense? So that I have to trip over my own selfish ambitions and prides and insecurities and all of that just so that I could somehow in that find a glimpse somehow at this when Jesus should be so reigning in an approachable light that I have to shield myself to just sort of see it through my eyelids? I think, oh man, what would it be like if when we came in and a song was playing and we knew, I'm gonna, man, I'm going to be with the king today. I'm going to be with the king today. We responded in the reality of what really is happening. Because it seems to me that the only person that really responds in any form of emotional or intense way is Herod. Because to him, a little Jesus is a huge threat. And these guys. But I think it's really about time that we become wise men. Not in the sense of staring at stars. Because we have even something better. We have his word in front of us. It's in our laps. Do we read it? Because, I mean, for what they had to do to try to put things together, I mean, we have in simple clarity before us. I think of that. I go, oh, God, what is wrong with me? I mean, sincerely, what is wrong with me? That I could look and I could think, this is a a Sunday. Now, look, I've never not loved what I get to do. And I know I'm encountering Jesus. And I expect that. But I... Sometimes it's just not, I don't expect it to be overwhelmed by the awe and the majesty of the God I'm serving. And man, the moment this becomes a business, what in the world are we doing? No wonder why the world looks and thinks, you know, we're so busy trying to be like it. We're not being busy getting rolled over by God like we should. Well, follow me in this. So what happens? So it says, when Herod heard this, but notice, by the way, the other thing really quickly on this in verse 2. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? We have seen a star in the east and have come to worship him. Can I just say, please hear me on this. This is going to be one of the reasons why in my heart, as I'm doing my own soul searching in this, these wise men, they worship Jesus because of who he was. Did you notice, by the way, they didn't come because of what Jesus had to offer. They came with what they had to offer simply because he was king. And the odd thing was, is they call him king of the Jews, and they weren't Jews. Jews came from Judah. That's the tribe, by the way, of Israel, or Israel's 12 kids. That's where that comes from. He's the fourth kid. I look at this, and I think, but he's so much more. And I'm not coming to you, Jesus, to try to somehow think if I praise enough or pray enough or read enough, you'll give me something good. You're king, whether I like it or not. And whether you choose to give me anything or choose to take my life, you're still king. And that's, of course, Matthew's whole approach. Christ the king. The king over all. They worshipped him because of who he is, not what he has. And when we get a view of heaven in Revelation 4 and 5, do you know what I see? Revelation 4, 8. Holy, holy, holy. Revelation 4.11, you are worthy. Revelation 5.2, who is worthy? Revelation 5.9, you are worthy. Revelation 5.12, worthy is in the land that was slain. You know what we get? We get holy, 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 worthy, worthy, worthy. And you know what that is? That is who he is. That's what it is. You know what they're going to worship him for? Who he is. And they'll say, because you've redeemed, because you've done this. But in the end of it all, I'm on my face because you're holy and because you're worthy. And that's just what it is. And if the world were to try to change their mind, it doesn't matter. You're still those things, whether they like it or not. So, Herod discovers that these guys have shown up. And how do you miss this? And when it says, by the way, notice, it's important to recognize, verse 3. When Herod, it says, heard the, see, when Herod, notice it says Herod the king. Did you notice that? God wants to make really careful clarity that Herod's really busy trying to let you know he's not a king, he's the king. And there's no room for two then? The makes really clear there's no room for two. The definite article says, I'm the king, and you're not going to, you're not, that means you, there's no room for you. So Herod the king heard this. He was troubled. 
The word, by the way, terasso, terasso means to be agitated or put into commotion. And all Jerusalem was too. Now, the easiest thing to think is that it says Herod was troubled, and because Herod was troubled, so was everybody else. But that's not what it says. So when Herod heard this, he was troubled. And by the way, all of Jerusalem was also troubled or agitated as well. Why? Because Jerusalem had been disrupted by a massive amount of camels and other people showing up with lots of stuff because they wanted to worship a king that wasn't Herod. And I would go, "Uh uh-oh. So Herod, of course, now playing the Jewish game, remember he's Edomian, calls in his staff, if you will. Actually, the people at the church, if you will. But they're somehow under his employ. And he calls them together, the chief priests, the scribes, and all of them together, and asks where the Christ was to be born. And it doesn't seem like it says that they conferred. Did you notice we don't read anywhere that there was a meeting or a searching or a brainstorming or a think tank created? It seems like they knew. And I think if I were those wise men, they would be the people that would amaze me the most. You know this stuff. Why aren't you going? Why are you here? I should have already been able to find you there, right? I mean, I would expect if you saw this and you heard that the king of all Israel was going to be born and you seem like it was quick on your lips, oh, how many times God could say that to me. You know, that is so quick on your lips. Can I find it on your heart anywhere? Why aren't you going? And I can't help think of John the Baptist when he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He points out Jesus. And then Jesus walks away and nobody follows him. I mean, it's like, you know, John is saying, look, it, I've been preparing you to follow him. He, there he is. And nobody follows him that day. And can I say, behold, the Lamb of God, go follow him. Follow him to your workplace, into your house, into your neighborhood, and to your schoolyard or whatever it is that God calls you to. And watch him change lives. So we got them together and they said, well, it's in Bethlehem. And then they quote from the scripture. So let me give you the scripture, by the way. This is Micah 5, 1 through 5, 5. Listen to this text. Because we get a, par- a portion of it, of course, here. But I want to read the entirety of it to give us some form of context. Listen to this. Now gather yourself in troops, O daughter of troops. He has laid siege against us. They will strike the judge of Israel with a rod on the cheek. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah. That's the Bethlehem portion that you would find, by the way, in Judea. Though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. Therefore he shall give them up, listen, until the time that she who was in labor has given birth. Then the remnant of his brethren shall return to the children of Israel. He will stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord is God, and they shall abide. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and this one shall be peace. That's what Micah says. And I look at this text and I think, wow, if Herod heard this, uh uh-oh. Maybe the religious rulers didn't give him the whole text because they didn't want to stir him up any more than he already was. Herod, verse 7, when he had secretly called the wise men, so it seems like up to this point, Herod has not encountered them. He's heard the information, calls the wise men in and finds out. He secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. That tells him so that he has a reference for how old the baby may be. And he sent them to Bethlehem. So it appears to me that maybe, just maybe, these religious leaders, I'm sorry, these wise men knew Bethlehem from Herod. It's like, hey, I heard, hey, I heard something here. I heard that you were looking for a baby king. I know where he is. Ah, he's in Bethlehem. Go find him. Go worship him. And then tell me where he is because I'm next. He's trying to pull one up on the wise men. We'll see how wise they really are, right? 
So he said them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child, and when you have found him, bring word back to me, that I may come and worship him also. When they heard the king, they departed. And then we get this, to close this up, our last three verses. There are those who always try to make it so that the most amazing thing in the Bible is their intellect approach to it. I don't know if you've seen these guys. What they want to do is they want to prove to you that they're so smart that the one thing you should be most amazed by is the way that they can interpret Scripture. So they'll say things like, well, it wasn't the Red Sea that Moses parted. It was the Reed Sea. And we're all aware that the Reed Sea is only about six inches deep of water. And so, of course, God did a little earthquake. Nothing really special. That stops the flow of water. Everyone could walk on dry ground. Look at how brilliant I have figured out God's miracle. The problem you have with that, then, is that all of Pharaoh's army drowned in a half of a foot of water. So they were either Minahunis, they were like very, very small, you know, whatever, or they were doing the army crawl and didn't have the sense to get up. I get the idea, really, in the end of it all, God meant what he said and he said what he meant. And what happens is a lot of these guys play stuff with this. And what they'll say is, well, you're probably aware of the fact, maybe you're not because you're not as smart as me or as informed, but there were these stars and planets that were all converging. And, and, and if you could just watch it just right, what you'll find is the three of them become one, and it's the star in the east. Well, here's the problem. If you're from the east, it's not the star in the east that led them west. It would be the star in the west, first of all, for them. Wouldn't that make sense? Because you're being led west. Hopefully you follow me on Anyways. Well, here's the problem on that. Look at this text. This is what it says. And by the way, I actually think that if you actually read Scripture, the one thing that should amaze you the most is God. I don't know. What do I think? I'm adult. It says here in verse 9, it says, when they, it says, Behold, the star in which they've seen in the east went before them. That's our first term in verse 9. Do you see that? Okay, here you go. Ready? Proago. Could you say proago? Proago is the word here. For went before. And it means pro like before. Pro means, if you will, to lead or to bring forth. It demands movement, by the way. You cannot lead somebody forth without going in front of them, or there's no pro in that word. And it says then, just to make it even more fun, till it came and stood over where the young child was. Till it came. The term there, by the way, erkomai. Erkomai means to come from one place to another. I think that's pretty simple. One place to another means you've got to move. And if it's one place from another, then the star was not three things that bounced off of each other and created this cool little supernova-y thing, or that there was a supernova that exploded in the sky, because this was God's own cool little thing. Kind of, I kind of picture it really like a masculine, cool, macho Tinkerbell. I mean, there's a glowing in the sky, and it moves, and they're following it now. They're kind of like, where do I go? Whoa, that's a little weird. This is before planes. Have you ever done this? You've gone, you, start at the, you stare out at the starry sky, and you're like, that's a beautiful, wow, what? And then you realize it's a plane. Am I the only one that's ever had that experience? Okay, well, imagine if it's the case before planes where actually what's moving is really a star. Now, if we remove the concept that planes ever existed, then this would actually capture my attention too. All of a sudden, the plane starts moving, and I'm like, oh, the plane, sorry, the star starts moving. I'm like, whoa, I need, whoa, where is that going? And then it stops, and it stops over a house. And I get the idea, if this was just a normal star, it would have actually burned Jerusalem, Bethlehem, and everything of its near surrounding areas. This is a star we're talking about. Or was it like how God speaks, by the way, of angels being stars? Could he have said, look for, like, I need the puniest star we can find here. Or maybe God just says, turn yourself down a little bit. You know, and then we're going to go down into, like, low flame or whatever. And then somehow in all of that, and I want you just to go, and, and imagine being, that's your job. I want you, you know, like, little Bernie guy. By the way, when we talk about cherubim and seraphim, seraphim means burning ones, for whatever it's worth. So, anyways, so get the ideas. Like, I want you to go and I want you to lead these guys. Imagine what that would be kind of cool. You're kind of like Flamo guy. What's his name? You probably know. It's Igniteo, whatever, the Fantastic Four guy with what? Human Torch. Thank you. See, I knew I was. And then you guys are so marvelous. Anyway, so um, imagine it's like the Human Torch and he's like, come on. And he's like kind of leading them. And then he just kind of stops and he's like, mm, 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 mm. and they're like, oh, this is the place. Now, here's the most amazing thing. 
Were they the only ones that saw this? Could it have been that everyone else was so actually overblown by the retinue of the, the, the entourage that they actually didn't look up at all? You could be so caught up in the fact, well, it's not like every day that we get a whole bunch of dromedary, drom, drom, one humpies coming into our area. Imagine just that the crew was so huge. And that's the danger, by the way, of us when we try to make ourselves look that big. Sometimes we can keep people from looking up. And so the, the most amazing thing to me is it seems to me that when they showed up, all that was there was Mary and, and Jesus. Yeah, I don't know. If I were in those days, would I have been on my face before him and not wanting to go? Would I have just been like, can I touch your camel? I mean, you know, whatever. I mean, like, where would I have been in all of this? Can I get a camel ride, man? Come on. Selfie. No. Oh, I got to do it again. He spit. Or, or would I have gone, whoa, man, you're going to see the king. Would I, have, would I go with? And I just think it's kind of amazing to think that this star starts to move and they just follow the moving star. And can I say, if God calls you to glow, and I'm not talking about something weird or funky and you're just, you know, we're going to wait for divine oil and we're all going to become like human torch in here. What I'm saying is God is going to shine through you. We're called the light of the world, aren't we? And if we're called the light of the world, it's our turn to move and lead them. But the only place we, this is what's going to happen. You know why we won't move? Because they'll see the star and think it's enough. Unless the star's moving towards the king. And the star's moving towards the king, they'll get what they're supposed to get. And we'll do what we're supposed to do. Oh God, give us such humility. So, this concludes with this, this particular portion. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And the idea of it is they just spazzed out in the very happiest of ways, which would be really fun for a bunch of dignitary, very wealthy men. I don't expect to see that. I mean, even when you see very wealthy men at a football match, it seems like they're the only ones not jumping up and screaming. They're like, oh, yes, they're lovely. I was like, nice. You know what I mean? Anyways. And this is when they had come. Notice in verse 11, they come into what? The house. Do you see that there? By the way, so you know the word for house is oikia, and oikia is Greek for house. There we go. So, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. They came to worship, and that's what they did. But that's not all they did. They didn't just fall down, which I think would be fantastic to watch, these men with this huge retinue. So if these men fell down, did their bodyguards fall down? Or did they just stand guard while they did? Did they lead everyone that was with them to do the same? Would I? But it says, and when they opened their treasures, they presented to him gifts. The gifts that they presented to him, according to this, they presented gifts to him were three. And of course, we're fairly familiar with them. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But I, I start to think that when Paul writes to the Corinthians, he speaks about how we have these treasures, Christ's presence in us now, in jars of clay, earthen vessels. And the vessel is so less important than what it carries. All that needs to be, it just needs to be opened up, it needs to be broken. Once it's broken, what's really precious can come out. Like the woman who had the alabaster jar. The alabaster for us today, now that's a pretty awesome thing because it isn't like you, you, know, you go to the alabaster store down the street next to the pound land. But nobody said that jar was worth, they said that perfume was worth roughly a year's salary. Because it was what was in that made it so precious. Can I say, listen, I get the idea of gold, it's resources. But then I get the idea as I look at these other things. I get this idea of this death because Merce speaks about it. it's an it's a anointing oil. That, or it's, a, it's, by the way, a scent that isn't even released until it's crushed. Also, the Greek name Smyrna. Perhaps you're familiar with that from the book of Revelation. And he says, you get, of, the, of all the churches, that's the one that's going to be crushed. Like myrrh. And I look at these things and I think, wow, myrrh, okay, that's used in death and burial. 
And I look at frankincense, and of course that's all part of this beautiful anointing oil of the kings. It's part of the uh, incense that is lit up in the temple, ultimately, during times of prayer. And I look at those things, and I think, well, there's three of them. And then I remember what God said back in Deuteronomy 6. I said, well, can you hear me for just a second? I mean, just hear me. All I really want is your love. With all your heart, your soul, and your strength. If you give me that, you won't ask me, do I have to? Do I have to give up? What do I have to do? Because if I had that, we, would, we wouldn't be having those discussions at all. And I just wonder, maybe in our own time, this week when you walk with the Lord, if you compare those, which of those would be the gold? The heart? The idea of that is emotions, if you will. or The idea of where your appetites are birthed. What you really want. Your mind. Where you value things and where you process information and where you actually start to see yourself for who you are or where your identity is. What happens if that were to die? Your strength. Everything that you could do. I think, man, what if today, in the presence of the King, I said, Lord, I crack them open now. My heart, my mind, my soul, my appetites, the idea of what I think I should do or be or whatever, I'm cracking them open and I'm laying and I'm pouring it out before you because you're worthy of all this, not because you've done anything, though you have done. You've done the greatest thing by sending your son, Jesus, this king, to die on a cross so that all of my sins could be vanquished, all of my guilt could be absolved, and in that you would raise again so that I could call you Lord, which is, in essence, a very polite term for king declaring him his authority over your life. And I get I get the idea here that if I was really willing to let God have all that, maybe I could be a wise man today too. And help lead others and say, I, I don't know why you're not coming with me, but you should. And I'm going to come whether you do or not because he's the king. That's enough worthy for that alone for me to go. So look at it as we go to prayer. I'm just asking, first of all, for those of us who make claim to Christ tonight, um, are you making claim to Him just as your Savior? You got a hell free card? Are you really willing to confess Him as Lord, letting Him be the King of your life? Because if that's the case, I think anything that you've got inside of you is a treasure that needs to be put before Him. And how weird would it be, by the way, to lay those things at the feet of a baby and say, well, in the right time, this will be used. In the right time. I, mean, I wouldn't expect the baby to turn around and go, well, everyone, thanks for that, and I'll tell you what you need to do next. I mean, and I think as we start to lead these things before Jesus, there's a time of beautiful rumination as God continues to cleanse out of our hearts, minds, and strengths. All of those things as he starts to then create new desires within us, new identity, a new everything beautiful that is. But if you've not accepted that gift of Jesus Christ, that death on the cross to pay for your sins and his resurrection to have to, to, to again, prove again his rightness, his deservedness, his worthiness to be the Lord of your life. And you need to do that. And not because I'm telling you. But as, if you will, the resident star, not star like I think I'm awesome. I'm awesome because Jesus made me awesome like you are. But the one who's seeking to lead you to the king, you're going to have to deal with him in the end. And it would be nice for you to deal with that account right now. His scepter has constantly reached out in mercy and grace. Receive that. You pray with me? Lord, I thank you so much for this text. I thank you for what you've done here. And Lord, I recognize that there's so many of us in, in this world that we walk, there's so many that are living a life like Herod right now, where they think that they're the king of their own world, the king, not, not, not room for another. 
And so any form of context of you in their life is, is a threat. It's a danger. But they're robbing themselves. And when I think of the miserable death Herod died, I wish that on no one. The emptiness, being eaten out from the inside, eroding into nothingness. And there's so many people in that similitude that that's really the story of their life. And I pray that for no one in this room or the sound of this voice. I pray that none of us would be so deceived as to think somehow that while we were in Bethlehem, that's cool enough, but we didn't go visit the king. Or well, I've banked on his price and what he's done. I've prayed a prayer inviting Jesus into my heart, which I don't even know what that means. Somehow in that I think I'm banking on that, but I'm not willing to make him Lord. And today, we need to get our accounts right. God's people are supposed to be the thing that mitigate to what degree the enemy is going to have any form of say in this world and we should be the ones that are so starkly opposite. That we look like you. And I pray right now that you really penetrate our hearts. And those areas that we feel like we've resolved to say that that you can sort of shine a bit of light on it, but you can really do no reconstruction. Lord, I pray that you would bust through and break through every barrier, everything we would call impervious to your influence. Batter our barricades, Lord, until what's left is your complete and rightful entrance into every aspect of our lives. And I pray today for my brothers and sisters and myself in here that we would fall down on our faces before the King and let you rule like you should in our lives. And if there be anyone who has yet to say yes to the gift of Jesus the Christ, and today you know you need to, I'm going to pray a prayer. I ask you to listen. And at the end, if you agree, I ask you to say amen. And what you're saying is, I agree. That's my prayer now. So be it in my life. And here's the prayer. God, I'm a sinner. And you, as a righteous king and judge, punish all sin. But because you love me, you sent Jesus to die on the cross for all of my sins so they could be properly punished without me being the one punished for it. And for that, I thank you for sending your son. And Jesus, I thank you for paying the price. And on that cross, you became my savior. And just as scripture promised, you not only died and were buried, but on the third day rose again. And as you rose again, you have the right to be my resurrected Lord and savior and king of my life. And so I say, yes, Jesus, you make the rules now. Jesus, you create the identity. Jesus, you give me the right dreams and attitudes and priorities. Take my life over and make it beautiful in you. I hand it over to you now. Jesus, in your name. And if you agree, I ask you to say amen. So Lord, now I pray as you prepare to send us out of here, that you would do something amazing. Cement in our heart these decisions we've made today. And send us out of here following our King. In Jesus' name. Amen.